promise you this, about 90% of those views are our teenagers going back and re-watching themselves. Um, I hit the ball this one time, so they have to re-watch the full two hours. I, I rag on older folks quite often in here, but there's one group of human beings that are deserving of jokes. Teenage boys are dumb. They are just, and I was one, I fully understand, and thank the Lord social media didn't exist when I was one, um, but we took the teens to a, a Hartford Wolfpack hockey game Friday night. It's two degrees with a wind chill of like negative 12. One of them showed up in just a hoodie. We had a two-block walk from the parking lot to the XL Center. Genius. Absolute genius. Thankfully, somebody left a random winter jacket in my classroom like two months ago, and I was like, you must wear this. It's too big. I don't care. Hypothermia is a problem. He also brought a knife because it was Hartford, and he was afraid he was going to get jumped. There's a group of 30 of us walking around, and got guys like Paul Urbanowitz and Rob Chalor who were like, you know, literal giants. And... <sighs> They're geniuses. And uh, Tom Weinshank actually got on the, the Jumbotron. They did an instant replay in slow-mo of Tom. They didn't even do that for half the game because it was that boring. But Tom got a slow-mo instant replay. Teenage boys are great. We had a fun time. So if you ever want to, like, change your life, come join us for a teen activity. It'll, yep, it'll do something. I'm not sure if it'll be good or bad, but it'll do something for you. I don't know why I told you that. I just thought it was fun. All right, Judges chapter 4. Last week we finished up chapter 3. We talked about Ehud, uh, his de destruction of Eglon, and the, uh, the Israelites basically earning their freedom back from the Moabites. Again, how long was Ehud a judge according to the Bible? Pastor got it. Anybody else? 80 years. Good job. And then we were introduced in the very last verse to Shamgar. We're given no other indication of Shamgar other than he was the son of Anath and he slew 600 Philistines with an ox goad. Uh, we are given an indication because of the verse before that, verse 30, and the verse after, chapter 4, verse 1, that Shamgar's deliverance of Israel and destruction of those 600 Philistines there came sometime during Ehud's reign, if you will, as a judge, okay? Just because of, this book does go in a timeline. It is in chronological order in this book, so we have to have that indication there because verse 1 of chapter 4, and the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord when Ehud was dead. Please do me a favor, underline that word again. Again. <clears throat> you can almost read and hear God's frustration at this point. They did it again. Those of us that have kids or have worked with kids, and you've got that one, no matter what you say, no matter if you, if you yell, if you punish, if you try positive reinforcement, gentle parenting, strict parenting, it doesn't matter. They did it again. And that's how I read this. And the children of Israel, again, did evil in the sight of the Lord when Ehud was dead. And that's the problem that we need to catch on to with this particular book, and I've already mentioned it before, these guys did great when somebody was telling them what to do, and they fell apart when leadership left. And that's a terrible indicator of the human condition, because we have the tendency to do the exact same thing. We come to church, and we've got our Bible out, we've got our pen out, we're taking notes, we're paying attention, but Monday, 
this gets closed and doesn't get opened again until Sunday. Why? Because the leader's not telling us to open it. We're not any different than these folks. We act like, oh, we're better than them. We're not much better than them. How many times have you made an idiotic decision as an adult just because you know nobody's watching? God's watching. He's always watching. And that's the thing we've got to keep in the back of our heads. And the Israelites somehow forgot that. The judge is gone, so we can do whatever we want. Let's keep reading here. Verse 2. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, that reigned in Hazor, the captain of whose host was Sisera, which dwelt in Harasheth of the Gentiles. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and 20 years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. So we're introduced to two new gentlemen here. We've got Jabin. He's a king of Canaan. He's got a, his kingdom is centered around the city of Hazor. And we're introduced to the captain of his host, if you will, his number one general, this man named Sisera. So please mark both of their names. These two characters, if you will, these two people, these two men, they're going to play a very prominent role over the end, uh, through the end of this chapter here. These guys... I, and I love the way the Bible words this, the Lord sold them into the hand. Again, this happened with the Moabites as well. What did God get in return for this? You ever thought about that? When you sell something, you get something in return. If the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, what did he get in return? It's actually answered here towards the end, verse 3, the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. God got a relationship with his people again. They forgot him, so he sold them, and his payment was they needed him again. Sometimes God allows us into some terrible situations to help us realize that we actually need him every day of our lives. And we act like, oh, well, the devil's oppressing me. Have you read the book of Job? Sometimes God lets that happen so that we'll get closer to God. And sometimes that happens because we're stupid and make terrible decisions. You reap what you sow. You can't make an idiotic decision and not get an idiotic result. Teenagers, come come on a Friday night. You will see that in spades. If you've ever worked with a teenager, been around a teenager, and for some reason that doesn't click in their head until they're about 25 and then it's oh my goodness and all those previous 10 years click at one time right? but here God sold them into the uh, hand of Jabin and I'm going to give you an ounce of Bishology here just, just an ounce look at verse 3 900 chariots of iron this is the only enemy mentioned anywhere in the book of Judges that has chariots of iron outside of one go to Judges chapter 1 with me Judges chapter 1, look at verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah, and he drove out the inhabitants of the mountain, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley, because they had chariots of iron. The Bible does not give us a lot of details here. All it says is inhabitants of, or, um, inhabitants of the mountain. So we don't know what mountain, we don't know where they are, it gives us no name. But it does give us that one indication here. They had chariots of iron. Now, Judges chapter 1 verse 19 to Judges chapter 4 verse 3. There has now been 
about 130 to 140 years. These are not the same exact human beings. There's not some like 190-year-old man oppressing the children of Israel here. But very likely, this may have been the same, if you will, tribe of people. Are we okay? Again, it's the only indicator that we've got is that chariots of iron does overlap here, and he is a king of Canaan. Canaanites are the people that the Israelites had left in their own land. This is likely the same group of people. They've been using the same technology, which means we're at about 130 years or so that the children of Israel have had to deal with an enemy that is stronger than them, literally living in the midst of them. They haven't been able to take them out to the point that this enemy has gotten strong enough to now take over the children of Israel around them. One of the things that's a key factor to pay attention to is the massive disparity in size between the enemy of Israel and the people of Israel. The children of Israel, when they stepped into the promised land, does anybody remember the number we gave you, or roughly how many of them there were when they crossed the Jordan, took over Jericho and all that stuff? How many, how many when we were covering Joshua? Just soldiers alone, there was over 600,000. Which, if you would do it a total account, we're talking somewhere between three and five million people, likely, counting all their kids and everything else. Because have you read the genealogies? These people had a lot of kids, okay? Huge number of human beings. The average city in Canaan during this era had 3,000 people. This guy's got 900 chariots of iron. Usually, a chariot in this era was two people. One person to drive it and one person to shoot with bow and arrow. It was usually a driver and an archer. Two people. So you've got an army here listed at about 1,800. How many soldiers did Israel have again? 600,000 versus 1,800. Pay attention as you read through the book of Judges. The disparity in the size of enemy versus the size of the children of Israel is ridiculous. Why do they lose every time? Verse number two, the Lord sold them into the hand. When God's against you, you will lose every time. Every single time. By the way, that also means the opposite is true. If God be for us, who can be against us? Gotta keep, gotta keep our priorities straight and remember which team we're on. Okay, got to remember which team we're on. One of the things that we're going to pop into back and forth through this chapter, and we already discussed it in chapter 3, is God has the ability to use whoever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, including the enemies of God. That's exactly what he's done here. If you go to Proverbs chapter 21, incredibly well-known verse, at least part of it is. Proverbs chapter 21, look at verse 1. Proverbs 21, verse 1. i got to grab a drink. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. At some point, God got a hold of Jabin's heart and didn't bring him to revival and personal repentance. He brought him to revenge and vengeance and said, let's take over these people that are around us. And he used Jabin to punish his people. Why? Because God's in control. I might not like the guy who sits in the White House. But God's in control. God put him there. Whether we like it or not, 
By the way, it also commands us to pray for him. Pray for his salvation. Pray for his sanity, among other things. Pray that he can learn how to ride a bike, you know. I'm going to stop there, but God's in control of who's in control of us. Okay? And again, these are the people, more than likely, that Judah couldn't conquer in Judges chapter 1. We listed that when we talked about Judges chapter 1 as a failure. And it was, by the way. It was still a failure. Why? Because there's no indication anywhere in Judges chapter 1, after their initial contact with God, what do you want us to do? How do you want us to go about finishing Joshua's work? When they came up against this enemy, this chariots of iron, there's no indication that they ever asked God for help. Go back to Judges chapter 1 with me. And again, look at verse 2. And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have delivered the land into his hand. That's God stating, I've got everything ready for you. But by verse 19, they don't ask God for that deliverance, do they? Here we are nearly, a, a, well over a century later, and very likely that same enemy is now in charge. They didn't ask God for help, so God let them lose big time. Let's keep moving. Look at verse Four. We're going to be introduced to a couple of more people that are going to be key players, if you will, in this particular account. And Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at that time. And let's just go ahead and pause right here on verse number four. We're introduced to one of the most important people in this story and the only female judge, Deborah. She's listed directly as a prophetess, which is kind of unique. There's only a handful of women listed anywhere in your Bible that are listed as a prophetess. We're uh, given uh, an indication that Miriam, Moses' sister, prophesied at least at one point in Exodus chapter 15. Uh, Huldah is listed as a prophetess in 2 Kings. Um, Anna in Luke chapter 2, if you remember, she was the, the super old lady that was there waiting to meet the Messiah. Uh, and by the way, Read through that section. I say super old. She was super old, okay? Like well over 100 years old by the time she got to meet baby Jesus there. And then uh, the apostle Philip, all four of his daughters are actually listed as prophetesses in Acts chapter 21. The Bible does tell us throughout the New Testament that the idea of prophecy, the gift of prophecy, is given to anyone, male and female. Um, in today's world, can I give you an indication? That's not somebody who's telling you your future. They're not going to be the people that tell you when Jesus is coming back on this specific day and this specific time. Those people are liars, and they just want your money, okay? And, and if you watch their, you know, 3 a.m. infomercial and you feel the Spirit leading you to send them $500, you're a doofus, okay? I'm just throwing that out there. The gift of prophecy in our era, in our age, if you will, somebody that's going to teach you the Bible properly. By the way... Ladies can teach the Bible too. What? Not necessarily as the head of a church. Read your Bible. But they can teach the Bible. Hmm. Interesting. Okay? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's see what the New Testament has to say about this for just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Again, keep in mind, God has the ability to use whoever, however, whenever at any time. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5, But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. So this is giving us indication that 
according to the Apostle Paul, that women have the ability to prophesy, correct? To, to teach the Bible, correct? We okay? You got real weird quiet here. Okay, good. Yes, 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 Mr. Bish. That is great stuff. Thank you. Okay, moving on. So here's where we run into a bit of an issue. Deborah, according to Judges chapter 4, verse 4, prophetess. It gives us the indication she's married. She's the wife of Lapidoth. The only information I have on Lapidoth is he had a really intriguing wife. That's it. We know nothing else about Lapidoth. There's very little information given about him throughout the Bible. And she judged Israel at that time. So God raised up a very unlikely judge. Think about that for just a split second. Today, the, the term patriarchy is this horrible, awful thing. You do realize that is how all of human history worked for millennia. By the way, it's also the way God put it in place. Man is in charge. Woman submits to man. Man takes care of woman. Read through, by the way, the rest of 1 Corinthians 11. It's kind of all in there, all right? But here's the deal. Can God use whoever, whenever, however? He used Deborah. This lady must have been pretty boss. See, instead of studying some random people through history and Women's History Month, they should study people like Deborah. Because she was a pretty amazing human being. By the way, in all of your Bible, this is about, chapter 4 and 5 is about all we're given on Deborah. And we know very little backstory. We know that she was the wife of Lapidoth. She makes a prophecy, by the way, later in chapter 4, that proves that she was, by the way, a true prophet. She makes a prophecy that comes true. Isn't that an indication, by, according to the Old Testament, if a prophecy... Prophet prophesies, and it does not come true. They are then a false prophet, and what is supposed to happen to them? They get killed. She prophesies here in just a few verses, and it does come true exactly as she says. Which indicates God used this lady in incredible ways. But she's not just a prophetess. She's not just teaching the people, thus saith the Lord. She's also judging them. That is actually a physical role. That would be... An actual, like when we say judging, two people come in and have a problem, she was the original Judge Judy, okay? I taught through the book of Judges with my junior church when I first got here, like seven, eight years ago, and we had a bus kit, and I'm like, who was the first female judge or the only lady judge? And this kid popped his hand up, and he knew, it's Judge Judy. Like, you get candy, but you're still wrong, okay? Um, by the way, that totally messed me up. I was gone for like the next 10 minutes in class. That was a great answer. Um, I mean, is he wrong? Yes. Was a great answer? Definitely. All right. But God uses this lady, Deborah, and everybody's coming to her. Hey, what does God want me to do about this? And she'd pray and ask God, and God give her the answer and pass it along. Hey, we have this problem. What are we supposed to do about this? You realize this woman had an incredibly stressful job. Have you ever dealt with everybody else's problems for a whole nation? I don't like doing it for the people I work with at school, and that's about 100. That stresses me out to no end. I can't imagine if I had three-plus million people coming to me, hey, we have this issue with our neighbor. Can you help us? Guys, you're both stupid. Go home, okay? I, 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 somebody would have stoned me a long, long time ago. God said you're dumb. No, he didn't. Well, he might have. 
it wouldn't have gone well with me, but go to verse 5 with me. And she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah. Apparently, this palm tree was very intriguing because it got named after her. So whatever and whatever this palm tree was, it's between Ramah and Bethel in uh, Mount Ephraim. This is kind of a weird spot. She chose a palm tree. There's no indication why. Maybe she liked that spot. Maybe there were pretty flowers nearby. I don't know. But she chose this one palm tree, and everybody's like, yep, that's Deborah's palm tree. Again, no indication. No, no idea why, but if you've ever been plant shopping with a lady, there's no reason. Okay? We just, you know, that I like that plant. We're going to bring it home to let it die in our home. All right? So she has this palm tree that she does all of her work under. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. So it gives us the idea that she kind of chose this spot because maybe it was easy to recognize. Okay, it says it was between Rama and Bethel. Maybe this was the only palm tree in the general area, and everybody just was able to figure out, oh, there's where Deborah's palm tree is, because it was, it was recognizable. You go over on uh, Industrial Plains Road here in Wallingford, um, there's uh, Cariotti Development. They have a whole row of palm trees outside of their business. They're like 30, 40-foot palm trees. Some of you are nodding your head because you know exactly where. Nobody has palm trees in Wallingford. But Cariotti Development does. Do you know why? Because everybody recognizes the palm trees outside of Cariotti Development. And if you ever need to get a hold of them, oh, yeah, 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 that's the people with the palm trees. It's just, it's an easy thing to recognize. And maybe that's why Deborah chose this particular area, because the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Oh, that's Deborah's palm tree. That's where we're supposed to go. Think about this. Again, if it's the only one, you're going to notice that from a far distance because palm trees have a unique silhouette, and you're going to know where to go. Maybe that's why she chose it. Here's an interesting thought. I want to give you an Israeli term here. I had to look this one up. Deborah is considered a shafat. That's S-H-A-P-H-A-T, a shafat. Does anybody know what that means? I stole this directly from Israeli historians. A shafat is a, it's the, it's the Hebrew term for a heroic leader. By the way, here's a very intriguing note. She's the only judge who's given that title of shafat, according to Israeli history. A heroic leader. By the way, she's the only one of the judges that does not directly go into battle and kill people to free her people. The only judge that doesn't do that but she's the only one given the title of heroic leader. That's an intriguing note. Ladies, you can do whatever God wants you to do. I am, I've told people this over the years, and it's confused a bunch of people. I have four daughters. I am a Christian feminist. I believe my daughters can do anything that they put their minds to, but I'm praying that they find a guy that doesn't make them do it all themselves. That's a weird way to phrase that, but I think it's a biblical thing to say. Because I would love for one of my girls to be a Deborah. And if it's going to be anybody, it's Molly. She will tell you what to do until the day she dies. Okay? You want to go to her for judgment, she will judge you harshly and without any mercy. <laughs> so, uh, but I would love, I'd love for one of my girls to show up. By the way, Deborah's not the only impressive lady in this story. We're going to be introduced to another one in this account that kind of actually makes Deborah look like a wimp. 
and she's one of my favorite people in the whole Bible. We're going to take a really long time on these couple of chapters. I'm just warning you because they're, they're intriguing. I told you, Eglon and Ehud, that whole thing would have made a great movie, but it would have been a relatively short movie. Deborah and Barak and Jabin and Sisera and Jael and all this, this would have been an epic movie right here, okay? This would have been intriguing. Join with me, and we're going to jump right into verse 6 here. So we've been introduced to Deborah. She's a prophetess. And now in verse 6, and she sent and called Barak, the son of Abinoam, out of Kadesh Naphtali, and said unto him, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor, and take with thee ten thousand men of the children of Naphtali and of the children of Zebulun? So we're introduced to Barak. Okay? And Barak is a from the tribe of Naphtali, based on the area that he's coming from. And this right here is where we get into something in the modern day that is more of an issue than it ever has been before. Gender roles. Is God twisting gender roles by putting Deborah in charge of a man here? Thank you. The answer is no. But there are people that have actually taken this directly out of context to state that gender roles don't matter to God. It's... it's there's no, by the way, there's nothing in here. Go with me to 1 Corinthians. You should have been there before. 1 Corinthians, we're going to look at a couple, verse chapter 11, we're going to look at a couple different verses here. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This particular chapter here is going back and forth. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, and he's, we've already read verse uh, 5 and talked about the women that prophesied, but we'll look at verse 3. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is the man, and the head of Christ is is God. God puts together the, the, the roles right there. Right there. Man is head of the woman. Head of the man is Christ. It's supposed to be that way. But he actually goes on to explain this even further. Look at verse 8. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. And if you actually jump all the way down, uh, or, yeah, you know what? Jump down to or jump over to First uh, Peter. We're going to actually completely go to a different place here. First Peter, First uh, Peter chapter three. Keep your finger in First uh, Corinthians eleven. We're going to bounce around just a little bit here. First Peter chapter three. There we go. First Peter chapter three. Look at verse seven. It says likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. So husbands, it's our job, men, okay, if Christ is the head, it's our job to take care of our wives as the weaker vessel. But if we go back to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and look at verses 8 and 9, neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. This is, a, this is an odd thought. Ladies can be just fine on their own. Guys, we are helpless, real bad. So we act like we're in charge and by all accounts we're supposed to be if we're a true Christian man of God but we need that lady to help keep everything in check this is not implying that women are inferior to men God just created us different we, we're, we're setting up a, a new it's called student information system for the school and uh, Mrs. Urbanowitz has been going through some training as we get this new stuff set up in place for this next school year. And as the guy was walking through, it's a phone conference, and they're kind of walking through the website and working on that. And he's like, uh, and now here in this section, this is the gender section. He's like, we only have two. 
And he just paused for a second. He's like, because that's all there are? And she's like, yeah, we, we agree with that. He's like, oh, okay. He's like, this, the, the company that makes this predominantly works with Christian schools, and there are Christian schools that are now removing gender information from their student information systems. God's not messing, yeah, definitely not here. There are two, male, female, created he them. You stay that way for life. You can't change it. It doesn't, thank the Lord, by the way, gentlemen, we can't have babies. Thank God. <laughs> if that ever, it, like if we all of a sudden had like, you know, seahorse abilities, paternity leave would be like the rest of our lives. Like that happened once, I need to quit work. I just can't handle it. Okay, you know that. Man flu is a thing for a reason. You know, we get the sniffles and we're out of work for like two days. And but you know, hey, we can work on the truck still, whatever. But okay, but look at God's not God's not twisting gender roles in any way here. And by the way, if you go back with me to Judges, as we go through the rest of this particular chapter, it proves it in spades. It immediately when we're introduced to Deborah. Beside, what is after the fact that she's a prophetess, what is the first thing we learn about Deborah in verse 4? She's the wife of Lapidoth. God made sure to include that right off the bat. Hey, she's a married lady. This is who she's married to. Because that's the roles God put in place. God just called her out and chose her to do a very special job. Which gives you an indication, by the way, Lapidoth must have been a pretty amazing human being. There's not a lot of guys that can handle it well when their wife outshines them. His wife was the most important person in Israel. And if he was successfully able to handle that to where she could do the job God called her to do, he must have been a very solid man of God. I can't give you any more details on that because I don't know anything else about him. But it, based on her and the work that's listed for her, Lapidoth must have been a pretty amazing human being. It's our job as husband and wife to lift each other up and make each other the best that we possibly can be. Because otherwise we're breaking each other down. When we do that, everything has a tendency to fall apart. I'm never going to give you marriage advice. I'm bad at it. I'm still learning. We're, we're going to hit 15 years this year, and I have no idea why she puts up with all of my weirdness. Eh? You have no clue. You, you only see this. At home, it's so much worse. I just, I promise you, I don't know why she puts up with it. I'm not going to give you marriage advice, but the Bible does. Husband and wives, it's, it's a group effort. It's not a 50-50, by the way. It's a hundred, a hundred. Because if you're only giving 50% effort, you're a loser. Oh, you can't call me that. No, God did. Do your work and take care of your spouse. Okay, let's move on. All right, look at verse 6. And she sent and called Barak, the son of Abinoam, out of Kadesh Naphtali, and said unto him, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor, and take with thee 10,000 men of the children of Naphtali and of the children of Zebulon? I'm, I'm intrigued here by the way she phrases this. Look at this. She calls for Barak. Barak shows up. By the way, where did Barak go to to talk to Deborah? Her palm tree. Okay, so that she, he shows up to her palm tree, and look at how she phrases this. Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying? This gives us possibly an indication. 
And it may be, I'm going to state this as some fishology here, but the way it's phrased and written, you ever thought that maybe Barak, God had already been working on his heart for this, and she's just reinforcing it? Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, meaning past tense, God's already told you, get an army. You got to go fight. And she may be just reinforcing what God's already told him. You know this happens. You're reading your Bible, you're praying, you're asking God for an answer. You show up to church and he preaches on something. You're like, who told him? How do he know that? He didn't. God did. You were asking for an answer. He just happened to use, by the way, the prophet he's chosen for us to tell us, thus saith the Lord. Barak shows up and he's like, man, I wonder what she's got for me. I wonder what she's going to tell me. I wonder, huh? Lord, are, are you sure about this whole fighting Jabin thing? Like, you realize at this point, these we haven't had soldiers in 20 years. Ehud's dead. We've had no major soldiers. You don't have an army when you're in servitude to another country. Are you sure? And she's like, hey, didn't God tell you to get an army and 10,000 people of your fa- friends and family and go take out Jabin? Oh, whoa, how did you know that, lady? Because God knows. By the way, God will always answer us. You do realize sometimes that answer is no. Sometimes it's yes. We like the yes ones. That's the ones we're always waiting for. God, you're going to answer this prayer, right? No. But you said you'd answer. No, I said no. But God, and we get into that whiny toddler stage where we just keep asking God for the same thing because we think we need it. He said no, but we keep asking. Barak's probably had some kind of internal monologue with God, and I state that because we all do that exact same thing. God says, hey, I need you to do this, and we start talking to God like, like he's an idiot and like he doesn't exist or, or he, doesn't, he doesn't know what's, what's actually happening. Let me, let me explain it to you, God. And all of a sudden, somebody else opens the Bible and says this, and oh, uh, hmm. Barak may have been doing this because, again, it says Lord God of Israel commanded it's not saying the lord god of israel commands as in hey here's something new for you hey here's something i'm repeating from god for you it's an intriguing thought we're gonna have to pause here your homework can i give you some homework it's really hard you have seven days to read two chapters of the bible read judges chapters four and five please four and five they go hand in hand come back next week and we are going to fit uh, We are not going to finish this. We're going to get farther into this particular account. Dear Lord, thank you for everything you do for us.